EOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, July the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Well, a bit of a reprieve from the stifling heat last night. Not so bad. Reasonable looking day out there again today. A little bit gray here on Kemmout Road in VOCM Valley here at the, this moment in time. I tell you what, early on in the season, the late spring, early summer, you look for a little relief by going for a dip in the pond. There's nothing quite like a dip in a pond, right, when compared to a pool. And at the beginning of the season, you know full well it is freezing cold. Now, many people have the courage to get into the merciless North Atlantic, maybe sometimes for a very quick dip, because that's all we can handle. But man, I went for some the other day, the pond was just so warm. You know, very little relief from the heat, because the pond, especially in the more shallow sections, was extremely warm. All right, so it's baseball season. It was the day in history in 1984, and this becomes a great Major League Baseball and sporting uh, debate or discussion. Pete Rose. He passed Ty Cobb for the most career singles with 3,503. He got the hit against his former team, the Philadelphia Phillies, so okay, back in 84. Pete Rose has more singles than just about everybody on the list has hits. He'd be somewhere in the top 10 with these 3,500-plus singles in the league, the league leaders, or the, pardon me, the career leaders, in hits in Major League Baseball. The names? Rose at the top, 42-26. And the debate is whether or not Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame. Of course, got caught betting on baseball, swears he never bet on his own team, but he's been banished forever and one of the greatest baseball players to ever live. And, you know, there's people in the Hall of Fame who did what I would estimate to be worse, especially when you talk about the doping. And there's some pretty scandalous character shortcomings and flaws by some of the Hall of Famers as well. So Rose, Cobb, Hammer and Hank Aaron, Stan Musial, Trish Speaker, Derek Jeter, probably the most notable contemporary player. In front of Honus Wagner, Yaz, Carly Jastrzemski, the active player Albert Pujols, he's on that list, Paul Molitor, of course, legendary brewer, World Series champion with the Blue Jays, and all the way down the list, Willie Mays, Eddie Murray, the, 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 the Cal Ripken Jr., George Bretton, anyway. So should Rose be in the Hall of Fame? What do you think? Give us a call. All right, I read an interesting story this morning about cricket in Newfoundland and Labrador. And Cricket NL, seven men's teams, one women's team. We'll get into it a little bit further. But before I saw that story, I saw a good news today in history uh, snippet about cricket. Cricket player Tick Freeman, Albert Freeman, Alfred Freeman, became the only bowler ever to take 200 first-class wickets before the end of July. So I went down from there to peruse the news of the day to come on this story about Cricket NL. Cricket has a real history in this province. You know, we've seen it displayed or portrayed in the Grand Seduction and some of the visuals, that particular scene when they come in on the water and you can see the lads and the lasses up playing cricket on the coastline, on the rugged cliffs, just a spectacular piece of cinematography. But the St. John's Cricket Club was established in 19, or pardon me, 1820. And here we are. It fell by the wayside regarding popularity around the First World War, where soccer and baseball and others became much more popular. But cricket is alive and well. They play Saturday afternoons out at the old provincial training pitch in Torbay. I think it, they call it the Flyers Grounds or something at this moment in time. 
So with that deep history, and they're trying to bounce back to bring more and more locals into the sport. Of course, it'll refer to the fact, now the membership of Cricket Island is about 250 players. The rules are a little bit complicated if you don't watch cricket. I seem to think it's a brilliant game to watch. Athleticism is just wonderful. So we'll talk about people in the province who are from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and others. But of course, England is way up there in the men's world rankings in cricket. I think they're number four this year in test match ranking. So we have a real history. If you would like to participate, interested at all. Now, it's a little bit costly because you can't buy any cricket gear here locally. So it costs a bit of money that they fundraise, got lots of sponsors, but they like to bring more and more locals into the fold. And they describe it as very simple. They'll teach you the rules. It's not a problem. But you see the ball, you hit the ball. <laughs> That's what one of the organizers has said to break it down really quite clearly. But Cricket NL, good luck to those who participate in, I think, what is a beautiful sport of cricket here in the province. 250 strong. I didn't realize that many people were playing. That's pretty great stuff. Also in a sport that doesn't have a whole lot of popularity on the ground regarding participation, but tons of football fans around this province. It's uh, game day. The Atlantic Bowl kicks off today in the province of Nova Scotia. We've got two teams over there, the U16s and two 18s. You can can watch those games live streamed on Football Nova Scotia's Facebook page. So the schedule I've shared as well on my social media feed. Our first game today in the under 18s. I think the font is pretty small. Under 18s, we play in New Brunswick at one o'clock. You can watch it on the Facebook at Football Nova Scotia. All right. And you know we love to talk about the hockey. And when you talk about sports at the elite level. It's, of course, lots of pomp and circumstance and congratulatory vibe, but there's also a very dark culture to some sports. We've talked about in the past just how many instances of abuse or maltreatment, harassment, that's taken place in sports across the gamut. Hockey Canada is in the spotlight and they are under the microscope, and fair enough. So the stories that have come out about alleged assaults in 2003, 2018, there was a fund set aside by Hockey Canada to settle one particular lawsuit that we know about. And so the conversation is important, albeit very troubling. I like to celebrate the sport, but we can't be afraid to look at it from all angles because we need players, participants, supporters, fans to be safe when they're in and around the sport, to be treated properly by players and coaches, managers alike. And when that's not the case, we need to call it out. So there's well understood pretty toxic culture in a variety of sports and unfortunately hockey gets a lot of that conversation even though we're talking about sporting organizations at the national level that are varied. But inside of Hockey Canada if we don't have the right people to deal with the culture of the sport, to understand the appropriate levels of reporting and investigation, holding people to account, then we need to blow it up and bring in people who can do exactly that. Hockey Canada appearing in front of a parliamentary committee to talk about these issues scandalous, is dangerous, potentially criminal, and so we've got to do better. The allegations are assaults against women who were fans or were around an event attended by some hockey players. We also have to remember that one fellow who's spoken out in the recent past, Sheldon Kennedy, is calling for the resignation of all those at the helm of Hockey Canada, which extends the conversation into protection of the players. Sheldon Kennedy was abused as a young player. You know, add to the conversation the stories of Theron Fleury, for instance, and others. So we just need to do better. As much as I'm a big fan of watching the sport on the ice, understanding some of the off-ice activities that are not quite as scandalous and ugly and criminal, it is part of the conversation that has to be had. 
And so if we don't have the right people at the helms of Hockey Canada, which looks like we don't, it has to be dealt with. And that goes for all sporting organizations. So this is not new, but the time has come for this to be put to an end once and for all. The appropriate level of training and conversation for young and old hockey players alike, men and women alike, coaches. Now they've created a new Sport Integrity Commissioner, which is going to give the, be able to have the mandate and the authority and the resources to do appropriate investigations and put said investigations in the hand of law enforcement, if that's where they belong. But that story is really obviously quite troubling. And it's time that it gets dealt with in an open form as best we can for once and for all. And that's all sports. But the very real focus is on Hockey Canada as much as that pains many Canadians. It's one of our, I guess, it's a big part of our sporting culture. But that doesn't mean we turn a blind eye because we just make things more dangerous, unsafe, and unhealthy for far too many people in and around the sport. And that cannot stand. Just one second, a sip of coffee. We're back. Okay. This story that I wasn't aware of until we started the program yesterday morning, it was in about an assault, or an, until it settled in the courts, an alleged assault in Bowering Park in broad daylight. A 22-year-old man has been arrested. So there's a lot of different tangents in this story, or tentacles. So it went from the fact that the, the bystander effect happened. The woman was being attacked and nobody did anything about it. Now, some people question whether or not they should based on the fact they might find themselves in more trouble than the attacker and or their own personal safety. Okay, but no one did anything. And then the arrest was made, and the man who was arrested, 22-year-old, has been released on bail. And as usual, stories are much more complicated than they appear. So the concept of someone who obviously presented a danger to that woman, allegedly, has been released, what that means for public safety, it's a fair conversation, and it's not only this case. But herein lies the newfound and understood complexities. I don't know the ins and the outs of every single part of this story. I don't pretend to. But the father of the young man is speaking out. And here's where we have to be cautious with how we discuss these issues. Okay, so he's on the autism spectrum. And he got away from the house. Okay. So understanding what happened and who people are involved in any of these stories and incidents and allegations is important. But we also have to extend that conversation one step further. You know, it's the same thing with how people think about and view, for instance, someone who's a schizophrenic. And now that what I'll, I'll call a part of the defense that's being offered is that the young man is on the spectrum. But we cannot allow ourselves to go down the path that all of a sudden we view people on the spectrum or schizophrenics or other formal diagnosis of mental illness that makes them inherently dangerous because it's simply not true. So how the story gets handled from here, I don't know. But in general terms, when we talk about people who have alleged to commit a violent act and then are released on bail, that conversation is never going away and it's important that we have it. And I do know that there was a lot of folks really spoke out quite forcefully and vocally about this issue when it happened and the story broke. I don't know what the additional information means to anybody. I'm not afraid to have it because, again, like other conversations, if and when we don't have them, then the status quo is perpetuated and that's not any good either. So just because you are on the spectrum or have a formal mental illness diagnosis does not inherently make you dangerous. Let's make that part of the conversation as well. So if you want to take it on, like many people have in the last couple of days, we are we're happy to take it on here on the show. Okay, moving on.
Yesterday, an announcement coming from Minister Andrew Parsons about the fact that the province is open for business regarding the fact they've done away with one of the controversial bills that basically banned any wind generation proposals here in the province. Most of that was to protect the Muscrat Falls project and to keep all of us as a captive market for power generated at Muscrat and other sites. Hardwoods, Bay Despair, Holy Road, whatever. So now the tune has been changed. Okay. They're opening up what it says in the news story. I don't know how pinpoint accurate it might be. Is all crown land for industry proposals. Multiple companies have come forward and they're interested in setting up shop in this province with a wind-related project. Okay. The return to the province not fully understood. You know, there, I don't know if there's going to be some fiscal structure that sees a royalty associated with wind. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you say it out loud. But the jobs in the design and the manufacturing phase, ongoing jobs with maintenance and other operations when the wind farms are in action, in operation. There will be questions about the proximity to residential areas, communities. People will talk, talk about the blight on the landscape of a wind turbine. And if that's the position you want to take, we can do it. I would also wonder aloud where agriculture as a priority falls into this new access to crown land. And then I think there's another interesting part of it. Well, let's get this one out of the way. People sometimes will automatically push back on wind turbines because they say it will kill all the birds. And all the while, here we are dealing with a pretty serious outbreak of the avian flu. You know, the Puffin Patrol has been put on hold, hundreds of birds dead on Point Lance. One of uh, my friends and co-workers here in this office talked about the fact that she watched the kitty wake die right in front of her very eyes in close proximity to her home a couple of days ago. So it's scary. But the wind turbine story, these numbers are about six or seven years old. It's the most recent I could find. What kills most birds? Domestic and feral cats kill a couple of hundred, hundred million birds a year. There are some in the neighborhood of nine million domestic cats here in this uh, country. Most birds in the country are protected by the Migratory Bird Conventions Act as well as the Species at Risk Act. But cats don't know who's at what birds on what list. Then you go down the, the list, it says power lines, collisions, electrocutions, wind turbines, and this, this data, which is six or seven years old, killed about 16,700 birds. The power lines and electrocutions, collisions, 25 million. Then it's collisions with houses or buildings and the windows, vehicle collisions, game bird hunting, pesticides, agricultural mowing, like the bobolinks that nest in the grass, commercial forestry, communications towers. So the exaggeration associated with killing all the birds with the wind turbines is exactly that. But here's more the questions that I'd like to hear more about. What are these wind operations for? Because they're not all the same. If you have a proposal with a deep water port, wind, access to water, the electrolysis to convert the wind energy into hydrogen for export, whether that be to the UK, EU, whatever. Okay, that's one thing. But as we know, we are the sole customers for the Muscrat Falls power. So are we entertaining proposals where, say, for instance, a commercial entity would uh, propose to build some wind turbines, generate some of their own power for their own operations, sell back excess unused power to the grid, the concept of net metering, but consequently, if there's any extra power coming in based on net metering, excess power based on wind generation, that has a direct impact on how much we're going to pay for the Muscrat Falls power. It does. So what are those implications? And what do they forecast for jobs? And are we talking about the establishment of manufacturing capacity here? 
or will a lot of these be one-offs where companies see the advantage of the amount of wind blowing the head off here? There is going to have to be an analysis done about how much wind can be generated safely with the grid as it stands today. Prior to moving from an isolated grid with the establishment of the maritime link, the grid could have only handled about 10% of power be generated by wind. And now with that link at 500 megawatts, what that means for a larger percentage, I'm not sure, but it has to be evaluated. So there's the questions. Proximity to communities. Where's agricultural fall in the priority list? What does it mean, the difference between a hydrogen-based project and or simply wind generation to run whatever, a mine? And they sell it back to the grid, and I pay more for Muscat Falls. So those are pretty important questions that I think we need a little bit more answers to. Open for business is great. Taking advantage of opportunities, yes, please. But there's a little bit more to it than I think we've got to at this moment. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? All right. Look, the topics, they're up to you. I think there was a really fascinating story yesterday in an announcement about the fact that the province is going to now be the home of a tomb of the unknown shoulder. We've been granted permission by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. We are going to repatriate... Uh, a lost Newfoundland or Labradorian who died in the Battle of the Somme. It will be officially unveiled on the 1st of July, Memorial Day of 2024, the site's 100th anniversary. That's at the National War Memorial on Duckworth Street. The, it's being spearheaded and operated by the National War Memorial Centennial Project. The other tomb of the unknown shoulder is of a soldier, pardon me, is interred at the National War Memorial in Ottawa, and I think this is only the second one. So the quote is, one of our fallen heroes, courageous, will be coming home. And I think that's a very welcome sign and announcement and pending official unveiling that will happen on Memorial Day of 2024. There's so many different issues we can get to. We can talk about them right after the break. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune on the go. Born today in history, 1962, Carl Mueller, bassist and founder of Soul Asylum. They had this great tune, Runaway Train. When we come back, run away too. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So right off the bat, it's good to see Buck Martinez back in the broadcast booth. Uh, he's dealing with cancer. But also, and I almost loathe to say this so the poor man is left alone to enjoy his holidays, but legendary Blue Jay center fielder, Gold Glover, Vernon Wells, is here. <laughs> That's kind of cool. All right, let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Rose. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Um, I'm a first-time caller. Uh, my sister called me yesterday, and she was talking about this man that called, talking about this woman that's walking Trans-Canada. Yeah. Yeah, um, I came in contact with her six weeks ago. Uh, I live in the Whitburn area, and it was 5 o'clock in the morning, and I was on my way to work. And I noticed this person in the long gray jacket, and the hat was on, and, and like I found it, like you know, pretty strange. You know, she was uh, at the time I didn't know it was a woman, but she had the hands behind her back, and the head was low, and she was walking. So I said to myself, I should keep a mental note. So uh, I work in a construction company. So we were down uh, in Central, and we were doing a culvert there, and. Uh, I see, like the boy said, look at this person. I looked up, and it was the same person. So, oh, my God. I said, you know what I mean? She was, this person was in Whitburn, and now it's, they're here, right? So we went to an establishment and for supper or whatever and to a store, and uh, uh, the person walked in. That's, that's when I realized it was a woman, and she asked for charity. But they, and even at the time when I went up, uh, they said she couldn't speak English, but she was denied even a glass of water. But we were there, and some other gentleman was there, and he told her to go get whatever she wanted. So I went back to my co-workers, and uh, we got money for her. And when I passed her the money, she just shook her head no. And I said, no, take it. 
right? So we were coming back on a Friday afternoon. Uh, we could drive back and forth, and uh, Lord and behold, then I seen her, Terra Nova. She was at the end of Terra Nova, come up on Port Blankford. So, you know, I had uh, family down that way, so I said, you know, keep an eye out for this person, you know, let me know where they're to. So sort of keeping tags on her. And uh, so they were telling me she was at Saturday, she was outside of Clarenville before, you know, and then west of Clarenville. And then I had another call in and said that she was on the east side of Clarenville. So I figured, you know, given how much she was walking, that and I said, maybe now she'll hit Whipburn again on Monday morning. So I went and I put, I was, you know, had my lunch packed, and I always put extra in my lunch. And uh, Lord and behold, I was on the road at quarter to five in the morning, and I meet her up there by uh, the Irving, between Irving and the Information Center. So I did a Yui, and turned around, and I stopped, and I looked, and I said, do you remember me? I said, I met you at a place, you know, I'll give you some money, and she shook her head, yes. And uh, I went in, I got my stuff out of my lunch can, and I gave it to her. I gave her my sandwich, and uh, she's not, and then she spoke she spoke English, and she said no. She said I can't take your sandwich, and I said why? She said because I'm vegan. So I gave her water, yogurt, and protein bars, and so I was there. You know what I mean? I said, she's thinking. Of, she said to me, she said you have a long drive to go for work. And I said yeah, we're a construction company. We go everywhere. And I said, my God, I said you're doing some walking. And she said to me, she said uh, I'm looking for a new place, right? So I just looked there and I said, uh, and I was getting my car because I was getting made for work. And I said to her, I said, uh, I said, what's your name? She said, Brooke. And I said, where are you from, Brooke? She said, St. John's. I said, hi, I'm Rose. And I said, I hope you look, you find what you're looking for. Now, uh, two weeks ago now, we moved to another place down in Port Blankford. And we were coming home on a Friday evening. And Lord behold, she was there in Clarenville. Yeah. I've since the the phone call yesterday it was from a truck driver actually who has spotted yeah. her several times. She's been seen pretty far afield, you know, up by Grand Falls, in around Terranova. I mean, it's it's an, it's an interesting story, and I got some mixed reactions to the call. You know, why are people you know getting involved in her personal life, what have you? When in fact, the fellow who called seemed to just want to know if she's okay. Yes, yeah. you know, just like you did, just like many others did. So this is not about intruding into the woman's life. This is not about pestering a woman who we see walking on the highway. People, I think, out of the kindness of their heart, just want to make she's o- make sure she's okay. Make sure that if she needs something and we can give it to her, we do. So yes. that's how I took the call. Yes, yeah, so same as me. You know what I mean? You know, she's walking with this long jacket on and. And she's got these heavy hiking boots on and these heavy pants on. And, you know, with the heat wave we've been having, right? So, you know, with the state of her jacket, I don't think she's sleeping in hotels or anything. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a bottle of water goes a long way. Absolutely, and I appreciate the update from you. Uh, there's, you know, sometimes you never know what's going to catch the interest or pique the interest of the listener. Yeah. I guarantee you I got two dozen emails within five minutes after that call yesterday about people saying they have seen her. One person reporting something similar to you that they've actually spoken to her and see yeah. if she needs anything or needs a ride or whatever. So there's a lot of kind-hearted folks out there. So this is not any of us trying to unnecessarily get in her business and, uh, you know, deal with her privacy matters. Folks just want to help if at all possible. So I'm glad you called this morning, Rose. Would you like to say anything else about her or anything else on her the sun this morning? No, it's like I just say, you know, if you see her on the road, stop and give her a banana, give her an orange, give her a bottle of water. You're not, you know, she's appreciative. 
uh, she might not have the money to buy it, but whatever path she's taken, whatever pilgrim she's on, it's her, it's her business, but sure. hand, that's it, you know. I appreciate this, Rose. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and like I said, I never really know what's going to take off here, whether it be for topics chosen for the preamble or calls and what people say, whether or not that's going to result in more input, tweets or emails or calls, which is my fave. But in this case, it was really quite clear to me that people, and the, the caller in particular, the gentleman who's truck driver, I think his name would have been Bill, just wanted to make sure she's okay. And, you know, if you are out there, and there's nothing wrong with walking alongside of the highway if you're being safe and you stay as far onto the shoulder as you can, whatever it takes. And if folks think that they'd like to help her out by a bottle of water or whatever, then I'm not so sure I can see anything wrong with that. Uh, one more before we get to the break. Let's go to line number two. Keith, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi there. First time caller, long time listener. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Listen, I just got a small thing to mention now, and I don't know if this is the right place, but the Ghoul's Bypass, uh, Robert E. Memorial. Yep. Um, what about tractors driving on that road and causing big backups? Do you ever have any calls about that? I have had calls about that, of course. Sir. It's a nice, convenient way to not have to skirt the community or to skirt the community. Thir- yeah. Look, uh, same thing happens around here on the Outer Ring Road. Between Kenmount no, and the dump, we'll say, there's yeah. not. it's not uncommon to run into a backhoe or another tractor that can only go as fast as they can go and bounce along down the road. I think they're allowed to do it, but it's certainly frowned upon. I don't know what we do about it because they can cause a pretty significant backup because we don't want people passing on safely, even though there looks like there's a good stretch where you can do it. But, yeah, they're out there. I've seen the same thing, and we've had calls on it. Oh, geez, because that road is crazy. Because with that one in the ghouls there, they got that uh, farmer's access road. That dirt road runs on, like parallel with the highway. Right. So what happens, you know, there's thousands of us come down from the southern shore every morning. And so you get a big backup, you know, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, rush hour, basically. The tractors are getting out on that bypass doing, you know, 30, 35 climbers an hour. And it's just causing, you know, there's times that there's 100 people backed up in the mornings. Then you're getting people making dangerous passes and... That's inevitably what happens, right? It's, it stands yeah. to reason. We don't want people doing it, but people will do exactly that. They'll take their chances, and that's the, that's the bad news. So I'll confirm as to whether or not they're actually allowed. There is a minimum speed issue, just like the, you know we get tickets for going too fast. There well, is an unsafe speed to go too slow as well on some of these roads. So let me dig in to see if there's defined or definitions in the Highway Traffic Act about these types of vehicles that can only go so fast. Like you're driving a backhoe, I mean, if you're going 35 kilometers an hour, you're bouncing around pretty good, which also jeopardizes your ability to control the machine and what have you. So let me see if I can yeah. determine one, once and for all whether or not they can, they can't, or they should, or they shouldn't. No, that's right. I like to I like to see because I mean I mean you're not allowed to take a vehicle and go 35, and I think your tax dollars are paying for that dirt road to be going parallel with it. I don't see the reason why if they've put in for that reason, you know what I mean? Yeah, we see it all the time. Parkway, Outer Ring Road. You're absolutely right. And yeah. Ghouls Bypass, but the f- amount of farming operations, in particular in that neighborhood. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. Jesus, lots of tractors go there. There's lots of people going home. And it, it, I mean, I don't blame the, the farmers either, but it seems like every time that someone is on a tractor on that road, it's like 4:30 in the evening instead of you know in the. It's not you know after rush hour, say right? Understood. Now, let me see if I can uh, get a final determination for you, Keith. Yeah, I appreciate that. You're most welcome, and I appreciate making time for the show. No, thanks a lot, Patty. All the best.
ticket. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, I, I don't know. You see it all the time. I don't know if I've ever heard of anybody getting a ticket for doing that, but anyway. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we had a call yesterday after, or yesterday afternoon. We were at the show's on in the morning. <laughs> oh, my. Yvette Coffey, who is the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador, she called the show about a variety of issues facing nurses, vacancies and otherwise, uh, emergency room services being diverted and the like. Don's in the queue to respond to Yvette. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. Yesterday morning, the head of the nurses' union uh, was on your program and made a comment to the effect that the reason why the nursing shortage in such a crisis was due to the fact uh, of the lack of resource planning by the Department of Health. It's part of it. And I think her statement hits the nail right on the head. I've been, ever since February of 2019, I've been dialoguing back and forth with Minister Hagee and the uh, CEO of Eastern Health telling them that same comment, that they have to have a department of, of planning that will forecast the needs of resources, both physical resources and human resources. Based on what parameters? Like, what would you factor into that formula? What they got to look at is things like the population shift, the needs shift, of, of those things, the aging population, uh, those factors go into it. So they have to look at what's showing up in their door today, and then based on that, do forward projections for the short term and the long term. If you don't do a forecast of your needs, how can you plan to have them there when you need them and where you need them? Okay, I mean, planning is always uber important, but let's just say this for the sake of conversation. If the hospitals are at just about capacity all the time, how does this particular forecast change the scheduling of resources, human and otherwise? You've got to get ahead of it. If you prepare a forecast for the future, you, you can put plans in place to meet that need. You know, you manage it. And, and, and that's part of the cost here, too, is poor management. I mean, it, it's just blatant in, in our health system, but it also uh, exists in, in uh, uh, legal, uh, Department of Highways, poor management. And, and, and one of the reasons for that, in my mind, is the fact that the deputy minister and assistant deputy ministers, as I understand it, are political appointees. So their job is to get their bosses, the ministers, party reelected. It used to be years ago when they were civil servants, their job was to look after the needs of the population. But that has all changed. And I can't, I can't blame them. I mean, they got to know what side their uh, bread is buttered on. And right now, there is nobody in our government departments thinking about us. They're thinking about satisfying the political needs of the party to get reelected. Yeah, there's where I think the conversation gets a little bit muddy for me. And here's what I mean by that, Don. 
the political upside to announcing that the 125,000 people with out-of-family doctor has now been reduced to 90 based on what we've done as a government. The backlog and wait times for knee replacement da, 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 has been reduced because of what we've done as a government. So that's where I think it's their political win to see things improved, streamline operations, reduce wait times, more people with doctors, new staff in the collaborative care clinics. There's nothing but political victories there, which is why I'm, I do indeed think that we go too far to say that they couldn't care less about us because if their, op- if their issue was to get re-elected, which it is, then those are political victories. It's the most important issue in the province at this moment in time is health care. If they could make it better, that makes their chance to get re-elected even better. That's why I think that we sometimes go a bit too far saying they don't care. Well, we're not getting great results. No, no, we're definitely not. Requirements. I mean, whether it be education, uh, justice, health, education, uh, highways. But, I mean, our Department of, of Health, uh, I, I've been after Minister Haggie now since, since 2019 to implement it. He kept bouncing the ball back to the CEO of Eastern Health or to the regional health uh, boards at that time and saying it's their responsibility. And, of course, they, there's no sense for, for them to take on a responsibility because they can't provide the solutions. Like, if the solutions is we need to train more nurses, who's going to provide the school of nursing to train them? I mean... The whole world is short on nurses, so we can't be expecting to be able to go out and, and get them from Nova Scotia or Ontario or, or other places. We have to train our own. That's why we have a medical school here, a well, nursing school here. Yeah, they did add 25% uh, worth of seats to the nursing school and five additional seats in the med school. And you say that we can't get them from Nova Scotia. That doesn't stop Nova Scotia from trying to poach healthcare professionals from this problem. Exactly. And, but we've got to manage our graduates better. Fair. So that we can keep them. And again, we go back to better management within these departments. Yeah, I mean, your relationship with your employer obviously will play a role. You know, some people are all in on the money. It's only the money that's the concern, but it's training opportunities, amenities where you live, opportunities for your spouse or your partner and your children, and how easy it is or expensive to get in and out of here. It's all these things. That's why if we just pretend it's the money, we're probably going to miss the boat on attracting other doctors who have various concerns. Or healthcare professionals, I should say. So, my question is to the new Minister of Health will he implement a planning department in his Department of Health to forecast the needs and to get current and long range plans in place to provide the resources, both physical and uh, people, that will be required in the future so that we can get out of this crisis? Yeah, you would think that that mandate would already be on the plates or the desks of, especially middle management, you know, between day-to-day operations management from senior executives and what have you. The relationship between them and the front lines is the middle management. And middle management... uh, is most of their time is consumed with not necessarily day-to-day operations, but the management and the application of resources, human and otherwise. You would think forecasting and planning would be baked into what they have to do, what they're charged to do each day. So it's a fair point you make, Don, because if you don't have a well-laid plan, you have a poor outcome. That's right. Appreciate the call this morning, Don. Thanks very much. All the best. All right, bye-bye. One more before we get to this break. Let's go to line three. Kevin, you're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Top shelf today, you? Good to get today. The, uh, an accident there going around Windsor Lake the other day. The wife passed it coming in. And 
So they had to gamble it. Yeah, you're breaking up a bit, Kevin. Let's see if we can wiggle it into a better spot here. Okay, what about now? That's not bad. Go ahead. Okay, so anyway, they had uh, the fire trucks and the police and the ambulance and all that there. My question in what for two days after, you could smell the fuel there and see where they cleaned it up. What have we got to protect the city water supply? I mean, that had to go into Windsor Lake. Done. So, again, I've been after them about this before. Same thing with pyramid construction. They come down there, heaven forbid, one of them loses their brakes or something, they're gone right into Windsor Lake. That's it, contaminated water supply. And they'll say that they have a grade on the road that tilts towards the ditch. Well, that's fine and good, but when it's slippery in the wintertime, you've got to touch the brakes. Where do you think you're going? Down that grade into the other line of traffic. Yeah, there's there are certain spots that are a little bit more precarious than others. Like, there's a little bit of a separation, for instance, on parts of Old Broad Cove Road. Parts of the Cove Road, you're eight feet from the water. You could oh. very easily be through that guardrail if you're going too fast and lose your brakes or slippery or whatever. Now, there's not a whole lot of direct points where you're going straight and straight at it, but there are a couple that I can picture in my mind's eye, and I've traveled that road countless times, so you're right. And the, the protection of the watershed is important. Just think about it. You cannot, you're not supposed to put your toe in that pot, in that lake. You're not supposed to touch it, period. I remember when we were younger, a couple of fellas who I knew got busted fishing in there. Yeah. Now, they're big as dogs in there, but you're not allowed to touch that body of water for obvious reasons. It's drinking water. Oh, without a doubt. So, I mean, why haven't they got in them spots more protection or ditches or some kind of a barricade across where pyramid down there that heaven forbid something do happen at least you'll bring up in that some catch containment or something you're saying when you make reference to that one specific company is when they come out of their quarry down there yeah oh yeah okay because I mean, you you know that big hill that's down there man that's nothing but steep coming down so i mean if they happen to slide or anything they're gone right in the lake sure yeah anyway patty my second thing now is uh wind farms yep I thought Wade Lock and Danny Williams and the boys said never never in the world would have worked, and that's why we had to go to Moscow. Well, I mean, there's some reference to that. I think the legitimate points made on wind at that moment was without, with being an isolated grid at that time and no connection with the mainland like the Maritime Link, not Williams or Locke or anyone else say, but the engineers quite simply said 10% of wind is all the grid can handle. Now that that's changed, I don't know what the new number would be, so I'll throw that in there. And, of course, they made wind the boogeyman just like they made Quebec the boogeyman because we're the only customer for Muskrat. So if we could build wind farms or I could put solar panels on my home, Home, that just means that my neighbor pays more for the muskrat power, so that's part of it, for sure. Oh, without a doubt. Now, I mean, we're just shoved back and forth like guns. It's time for him to have some game plan, but anyway, Patty, you take care. Thanks for your time. Anytime, Kevin. All the best. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. I, look, opportunity is something that we have to seize, but we have to understand a little bit more about what that all means. You know, unlike, say, the fishery and mining and oil, the so-called common shared resources. In mining, there's the tax base created through jobs, and then there's the royalty that flows to the province. Same thing with the oil industry, not so much with the fishery necessarily, because there's no royalty on fish, but it is a common shared resource. And inside the wind business, if it's to create green or blue hydrogen with electrolysis to export power to whoever, okay, that's one thing. But it's different if it's set up for a, a responsible, pardon me, for an entity to generate power on site, sell back to the grid, for instance. 
because that has a direct implication on our hydro bills. Anyway, we're going to see if we can get more of those types of answers. Maybe it's time we'll see if Minister Parsons would like to make time for this program the next day or today, whenever, because I'd like to know more about that. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? When we come back, we're speaking with you. Get in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lang. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi, this morning. Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing quite well, sir. Good. Patty, I, I want to talk about yesterday's announcement, but first of all, I just want to say I was listening to a previous caller there, Don, and he was talking about the challenges in our healthcare system and and I think he makes a very good point around planning. And, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me when I, I listened to uh, your conversation with the uh, president of the Nurses Union, Beth Coffey, yesterday as well, and one thing that she said that really stood out to me was the fact that, uh, I, I'm not sure the exact number, but I think she said it's like half of her membership or something like that, some very high, uh, high percentage of their membership are either could retire now or soon will be available to retire now and we don't have nearly the number of nurses being put through nursing school to uh fill that gap so that's 100 percent a planning issue yeah just for for context uh last year the province graduated i believe the number is 230 nurses where the nursing vacancies at this moment in time is in the neighborhood of 600 so obviously there's a disparity there add into the fact how many nurses are within five years of retirement that 600 you can put another one in front of it very quickly exactly and that and to don's point that is 100 percent a planning issue and there's no escape in that point um, and uh, of course all the issues that we're seeing you know with uh, with the doctor shortages and so on um, you know this isn't this isn't new stuff this has been talked about for ever and you know uh, you know at the end of the day we have this administration have been in place for the last seven years albeit two different premiers but basically the same people and they have to take some responsibility for where we're to. But with that said, I, I have had uh, some communication with uh, Minister Osborne, someone who I do have confidence in, and uh, I do believe that he's going to do his very best to try to clean up the issues around uh, recruitment of our own MUN medical students, as well as trying to address the uh, um, foreign doctors and, and medical professions, uh, particularly Ukrainians, but I guess all, all doctors in that category. So I wish him nothing but the best in that regard because his success is our collective success. Um, sure. Pat, yep, Patty, um, uh, I just wanted to talk about yesterday's announcement. Um, you know, certainly uh, it looks like uh, some more great opportunities for uh, our province, and, um, and so I see it as a potentially very positive uh, thing. Uh, I have questions, uh, and I heard you in your preamble raise some, you know, there are a number of questions regarding, you know, whether this is would be projects that would just sell power right to the grid, or is this uh, going to be, you know, converting uh, converting into uh, hydrogen and so on, which would be, uh, I guess, sold to Europe or whatever the case might be. And those are all different projects with their own implications so i i think that's why it's important to 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 note that what they were talking about yesterday i believe because i did attend the briefing um is the fact that what they're going to be doing is they're going to be sort of opening up for people to 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 sort of talk about areas they may be interested in and so on 
And then at some point, the government will look at those areas and then there will be certain areas, as I understand it, mapped out where people, where proponents can bid on. And once they bid on these projects, then it would be a case of, according to the government, where they're going to look at which projects, um, you know, provide the most benefit to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. So I'm sure considerations around whether or not, you know, it's power going onto the grid that we probably don't need versus uh, hydrogen, which could be just shipped off the island, that would probably make more sense. I'm sure that those would be considerations when government look at the different proposals. As to that makes sense, Paul. But let me throw that makes sense. Get. But let me throw this yeah. in there because if yeah. we're talking about uh, wind for electrolysis, for hydrogen, for export, that yeah. also comes with some unique requirements as opposed to all crown land. Like there's a difference between setting up turbines at a mine site in the interior versus the mm-hmm. access to a deep water port. Number one, yep. wind and water. And yep. if we have a deep water port, generally that's a developed area. So there's commercial, industrial, and residential very close by. So that's one mm-hmm. thing, as opposed yep. to if I have a, for instance, gold mine. And I think that if I just put up 12 wind turbines, I can really contribute to lessen my power bill at the mine. That's a different project. Absolutely. Right? So I don't know Absolutely. what gets priority, but it's a, I think it's a real question because the value in return for wind, I'm not trying to diminish it or dismiss it because opportunities are opportunities. So whether yep. it be manufacturing at the onset, the, the planning stages, because once they're up and running, I don't know how many jobs would be associated with ongoing operations and maintenance. I, I don't know if there's a whole lot, to be honest. No, I, and I don't know either, and I guess that's why it's important when, uh, you know, at least what I was told at the briefing, that they're going to evaluate each project on a case by, they'll evaluate each bid that comes in when we get to that stage, and they would be looking at which, pro- it wouldn't it wouldn't have to do necessarily with what the bid is per se, according to them, it would be more about which project makes the most sense for our province in terms of uh, maximizing the benefits to the province and to the people of the province. And I guess things like employment and, and service, you know, and, and opportunities for other companies to service projects and everything else, I guess all those factors would be thrown in there to see what makes the most sense for us in, in terms of a province. So I guess we kind of have to let it play out. It's very preliminary at this stage, but I, you know, I, again, I think it is an opportunity that's definitely worth exploring. And I, I think it's pretty exciting quite frankly um but you know with that said i also uh, an issue you didn't really raise in your preamble and i just wanted to throw into the mix as well is i'm also a little concerned or or would want to make sure that there's some provision in there about the land because we're talking about huge swaths potentially of crown lands so you know personally i would like to see you know some sort of a situation where the land was leased, uh, you know, even for even if it was for a dollar or whatever, the land was leased for, you know, an extended, for a long period that could be renewed, providing the project, you know, continues to exist. Because what happens, you know, I would want us to see, you know, just giving away all this crown land and then so many years down the road, they scrap it and then all of a sudden the land no longer belongs to the people, it belongs to private hands that can do whatever they want with it with crown land like i'm not sure how what safeguards will be put in place but i definitely think there needs to be some safeguard to say that you can use this land to to put in your windmills or whatever the case might be but if at some point in the future this ceases to exist or you go under or whatever and then that land goes back to the people of newfoundland labrador not following the private hands yeah i can't imagine it'd be anything but a lease 
I would hope. Well, that would be my hope. But uh, I didn't see the word. Le- I didn't see lease in 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 what I read, at least, or what I you know, the briefing I attended. So, I'm just saying it's a consideration that we have to make sure we protect ourselves and we don't end up giving away. Uh, what you know belongs to the people of the province. I guess that would be my, you know, one of my concerns. And of course, the other thing is, if we're going to allow these projects and it's going to be taking up huge amounts of land, then I would hope and that there would be provisions as well that you know they can't block ordinary citizens from gaining access, for example, to trout ponds, berry grounds. Um, hunting grounds and so on, you know, that they wouldn't say you can't cross our land to get over to this or that. I understand if there's a, you know, if you had a hydrogen facility or whatever, you know, that has to be protected and fenced in, so, you know, so be it. But in terms of miles and miles of this corridor uh, going across uh, the countryside, that uh, I would hope that there would be, you know, a provision that, you know, you can't block other citizens from getting to other parts of the land and so on because that's there so yes. you know these, these are some Fair of the things enough. that need to be put in place i think you know yeah uh, I, that, I think it's an opportunity and let's see where it takes us you know appreciate the time paul thanks for the call thank you very much patty all of your best you too bye-bye it's paul lane independent member of the house for mount pearl southlands all right uh before i get to the news the numbers to dial to get on in the queue and on the air if you're in the st john's metro region the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 and the topic that's up to you don't go away Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Gary, you're on the air. How you doing, Penny? Okay, how about you? Uh, not too good, boy. This is Gary Callenbeck about my son, Mason. Oh, yeah? Um, I was talking to Barry Hewitt the, during Monday. Now, Barry said uh, there's not much that he can do with, with my situation because w- where I'm at with it. But he called me to get some uh, legal advice. Now, I do. I was talking to uh, a lawyer, and the lawyer can understand why the police never got involved yet with this. Uh, Gary, j- just before we go any further there, just remind folks who might not have heard your call what we're talking about. Well, I got a son, he's 13 years old, and uh, he's diagnosed with ADHD, and God only knows what else he got now, uh, because he's very violent, and uh, and uh, he's just a very sick boy. And uh, I'm, after going everywhere with this study, uh, trying to get help and uh, for him, and uh, he, he was living with me, and he took off and went with his grandmother. Right. And he's after assaulting his grandmother and spitting in her face and doing a lot of damage down there. And uh, it's all about the mental illness. And uh, I'm after going to child uh, protection, social service, social workers, their CMP, to try to get them into the Janeway for help. And that's all I'm trying to do. And uh, and I think it's over with it, Patty. I still, I'm still at it. I'm still rattling my brain over this, trying to... Uh, get my son into the Janeway to give him on his medication because he's not taking his medication. And uh, I don't know where else to turn by and then uh, what to do. And like, you know, uh, everywhere I go is I'm up against a brick wall with this. And uh, when I was talking to a lawyer anyway, uh, Barry gave me a number of pre-legal advice. And the lawyer can understand why the police never got involved uh, when he when he said he was going to commit suicide. 
and he can't understand why the uh, child protection and the social workers never even made appearance to the house, to the apartment where he's living to now, right? It, like, he can't figure that out at all. He, he don't know why. Once that was reported, they should have went there right away and, and see what was going on, right? Well, I had the same feeling. I don't know why that didn't happen because, you know, the advice that we give and that we hear all the time is if someone either says, like, for instance, if someone calls Dave and says that they are contemplating harming themselves or are dying by suicide today, we're obliged to call the police. Exactly. So Patty. I don't know why it's different for you and Mason. I'm just not really sure what's going on there. And I'm not sure either, Patty, what's going on there. And, like, I tried to talk to his grandmother uh, the past couple of days, and all she says to me is, leave me and my grandson alone. Right? So it was no sense of me even trying to talk to her. Uh, and you wouldn't believe the text messages I'm getting from Mason now, Patty. I, I wouldn't be able to say it over there because I'll be caught up. Uh, is absolutely ridiculous what he's sending me in text messages, right? You know, he is very sick, Patty, and, you know, uh, he's getting sicker and sicker every day. Like, you can not, like I can see it in the text messages he's sending me, Patty. It's, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, you know, and why nobody won't get involved or help me? Like, I'm pleading for help here to help my 13-year-old boy. Like, and there's no one out there to help me, you know? Yeah, I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, even inside of law enforcement, even inside of the Royal New Flank Constabulary, I mean, we've been talking about the required training to deal with the general public when you may indeed come upon an issue regarding someone's mental illness. And they've yeah. adopted a model, I think it's called the Memphis model, where they have a plainclothes officer, healthcare professional, mental health professional, accompanies the officers to these calls when they know what's going on. But if yeah. we have members of the public who are pleading for help, and I mean, without the training for me or for you or anyone else who belong to the family or the friends of Mason, we, when we don't know what to do, and we think that someone might be in jeopardy, someone else or Mason themselves, we do what we're all asked to do, and we call the authorities. So yeah, where exactly. else do we want people to turn? Like, I'm at a loss here as to what the next steps would be for you, Gary. I really don't know what to say. Um, Patty, listen, I worked at the Waterford Hospital for years. I'm retired now. I worked at the Waterford Hospital for years, right? And I, I have to see the lab in there uh, when it comes to mental illness and young people and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and you know, once they get on the medication, they live a normal life. And something goes in there, and they, and, and uh, they they're out for a few months. They goes out to medication, they're back again, right? And this is what happened to Mason. He was on his medication, he was doing great. He was doing great when he was living with me and my girlfriend. And uh, back in school, like he wasn't even in school out there. He's grabbing, he's grabbing, he was out of school for months, and I didn't know nothing about that. Mm -hmm. And right, and uh, and and when I went, went down, took took him and and uh, come on with him, I had him back in school within within two or three days. Saw him up in school out here in Marystown, that and. Uh, had him, you know, had him on the right track, like taking him trout and taking him on the bike, taking him to the cabin, you know, doing the father and son thing, and everything was great. And as soon as she moved out to her Mary's town here, Patty, right out of the blue, she ran to her, and everything was off the rails, and he, and, and that's it. And and I only blame one person on this, and that's her, that's his grandmother, because I'm, I'm pleading with her, I'm trying everything, and all she's doing is nothing, doing nothing at all about it. Letting them run the show, you know, he's getting more violent every day. He's the text message he's sending me, and it's just I don't know, I don't know if anyway, you know, something's going, something's going to happen down the road, and 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 here we are now with this, right, you know. And then it might be too late. 
Uh, yeah, exactly, Paddy. And, then, and, and here I am now playing, playing with the public, playing with the government, playing with the Eastern Health. And when something happens, and something's going to happen, that it's going to be too late. Mm-hmm. Right? You know. Gary, if anybody gives me any helpful advice that can actually make a difference for you and most importantly for Mason, then I'm going to, I mean, I've got your number. Yeah. And if anything comes across my desk or my computer screen, I'll I'll reach out to you. But please, please do, Paddy. But I will. I'm pleading with you, right? And, I will. You know, and, and Paddy, it's not for me. Like I'm doing this not yeah. to hurt me, not to hurt me. I, I'm just trying to get him in the Janeway to get him the help. And while the RCMP didn't take him that day, and and uh, and and the, and social services just swept everything under the table, which they should never ever did. Right? They should have investigated this for, for sure. I don't know why. You know, you know, even the Minister of Health should, you know, give him a call, uh, Tom Osborne, and, and, you know, see what he got to say about it all. You know, I don't know if that's any sense, right? You know. I appreciate this this morning, uh, Gary. And like I said, if anything comes across, however I get my hands on it or my eyes on it, if I can pass it along to you, I promise I will. Please do, Paddy. Thank you very much. Okay, Gary. All the best. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, okay. Just to build on that conversation just a little bit, I just saw this came past my uh, computer, my uh, Twitter feed while Gary was speaking. I got a feeling that it's aimed at me, and I'm not paranoid, but the timing on the tweet is very much akin to when I spoke to the issue regarding the Bowering Park assault, the alleged assault, that happened, I think it was yesterday or the day before. Okay, so, and this person is spot on. She says, I have a problem when the victim's sufferings are minimized or justified. Yes, there are two sides to all stories. This makes it understandable. It does not nullify the effects on the victims. So some of the conversation has changed now that more information comes out about the the perpetrator and severe autism and the like. And one of the points I was trying to make is that let's remind ourselves that living with schizophrenia, living on the spectrum does not inherently make you violent. By no means would I, or I think anyone reasonable, try to diminish what happened to the woman and her mother and the child that was present. So, of course, what the issue is surrounding the person who attacked her, allegedly, that does not diminish the long-term impact and the short-term impact on that particular group of people. And maybe for those who were also bystanders who, in this case, did nothing, or nothing physical anyway. So... If I was heard like that, like there's any attempt to diminish what happened to the woman or others because of new information coming forward, I didn't mean that at all. And I would never stray down that road purposefully. I just would not. So I, I'm not going to take it as if, oh, my God, every cross, every cross thing out there is about me. It's not. But it's right exactly about the time where I would have spoken to it off the top of the show. So I just want to make sure that I'm clear on that point. One more. There is more and more pressure being heaped on federal and provincial governments to implement a three-digit number for mental health crisis line. I, I think they've established this in many parts of the United States. It makes sense, right? If you don't have that number on the tip of your fingers or exactly where to get it and knowing that a crisis is exactly that, then if it was something like we all have ingrained, even at a young age, 911 if it's an emergency. But 911 doesn't have the capacity of mental health, mental illness trained professionals on the other end of the line. So as opposed to mental health crisis line 
and or of course much that has been uh, folded into 811 if there was one three digit number whatever it is 777 that was mental health crisis people would very quickly remember that just like they do 911 so that's a really interesting conversation we can also pick up on right after this don't go away welcome back uh, let's go to line number seven Bert you're on the air hello hello is you Patty this is me this is Bert welcome to the show what's going on Bert uh, I want to I went up to the, uh, the police station there now since last week and I had uh, a battery stored out of my bike I got a electric bike okay and I had the battery stolen. Now, to replace the battery costs $1,000. So uh, I'm waiting on the police to come out, and I, I pleaded with them to come out and take some uh, some fingerprints and everything. Yeah. And I haven't seen not one of them yet. And that was over a week ago. And so you went to file an official report at headquarters? Yes, I did. And so your request of them is to make their way to your home where the electric bike is to do some investigation, take some fingerprints, whatever other evidence they can get. That's what you're hoping for, is it? That's what I was hoping for, yes. But I hadn't seen no, neither one of them now since. And uh, it is raining now, so therefore all the fingerprints have gone out of the bike. Quite possibly, yes, sir. So when you spoke directly with an officer at the counter at Fort Townsend and asked for that to happen, did they say, we'll see, we'll try, someone will? What was the answer? Well, I was up there three times. Yep. And I had a taxi up and a taxi back. And then I got the brother-in-law to take me back up. And uh, last, that was yesterday, and uh, he said to me, he said he's going to fix to the officer that is looking after my case. And I haven't seen her. Okay. Yeah, we don't necessarily get the response in the timely fashion that we would like when we're the victims of whether it be a break-in or someone stole your bike or your, the battery in this case. So are, do you think that you're holding out hope that they will make an appearance at your home and see what they can figure out or find out and you know maybe get some doorbell camera video from your neighbors or what have you to pursue or do you think that this is over i i don't know why really yeah i'm hoping that that, that is you know they come out and check it out anyway right absolutely i hope you get some action as well, well my bike is electric bike that i built, built they said my friend of mine we built it okay interesting so I'm after putting seven thousand dollars in the bike. What a shame, boy! People out there—they'll rob the eyes out of your head, boy. It's shocking. Yes, and then come back for the holes. Yeah, you're you're 100 right. It's terrible. Listen, keep me in the loop, Bert, as to whether or not you get some follow-up uh, from I police. Doubt it. I doubt it, sir. Well, I, I'd like to know, though. Yeah, I would like to know too. Sure. Well, stay in touch. Let me know what happens. Okay, Patty. Thanks. Thanks, Bert. All the best. Okay, sir. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Patty, uh, you know, kudos to your program for the, uh, you know, providing an opportunity for people to speak and not being judgmental. You handled two very difficult subjects that are on the go there, one being the assault or the alleged assault in Bowering Park of a person by a person who who now 
uh, appears to have uh, medical issues that uh, put this person out of control. It's not an easy road to go down, and I don't think there's any way to keep everybody happy on that. Well, uh, it, it uh, just adds a yeah. different information and more complexity to an already troubling story. Yeah. So uh, by no means will I diminish the impact that it's had on the woman and those who are in the park, the, the mother, the child, the lady herself. I would never attempt to do that because that would be horrendous. I do think it's important that, especially with all the focus we give to mental health, mental wellness, mental illness, just always also need to remind ourselves that being on the spectrum doesn't mean that you're just ready to pounce and be a violent, dangerous person. So I, I just put that in there because I think that's part of the general conversation as opposed to the specifics of this one. I, and it's a difficult balancing act I try to strike here on these things I want to be attentive to all the angles but it you know I'm going to take it a few swats from different people and that's fine because it's a tricky piece of business and I'll, I'll take whatever's coming my way yeah they're usually close-minded those people they want you know people to look at it one way but uh, and once again compliments to the program we've been looking at it always I think the POCM and other media have been very balanced in the reporting since it's come out Patty uh, on another issue you had a call a little while ago while I was on hold there from a gentleman who is having a lot of difficulty with the child now you know listening to that there's not a whole lot you can do and it gives an opportunity for the person certainly to vent but having listened to you know all the agencies apparently that have been involved from the police and, and social services i assume youth probably involved in this and others and the way this is going and the obvious very strong conflict within the family as to how this you know issue should be dealt with there's once again a lot more to the story than to perhaps one side and uh, again compliments you know you, you don't take a side it's an opportunity for a person to share their feelings and yet not be judgmental that there may be a lot more to this than perhaps we're hearing on one side of it so it's, it's always good to do that uh, i i called really to speak about two pro, uh, two very subjects i'll sort of keep them both because mr lane copy uh, uh, did a great job on one and that was uh, wind power development initiatives that are undergo within the province mr lane as mr lane does uh, sort of asks questions and raises issues and uh, does a very good job on it uh my concern on it i think are not unlike mr lane's and and, and perhaps yours too based on your comments is that um, we need to get a maximum return uh, for the asset that we have while encouraging business to develop the asset. And uh, my concern about this is our province doesn't have a stellar record of doing that in past performances by either Liberal Party or the Conservative Party. And of course, I think about Churchill Falls and I think about Muskrat Falls. What's going on in this particular one on wind development, it all seems like since President Biden last week announced a major initiative and in billions uh, towards wind energy, Canada had been sniffing around on it. Now, Canada, too, is in this. Patty, the Canadian government, uh, through one of its agencies, I can't recall the name of it, but uh, it's an energy development agency, has issued a response, has issued a call for proposals. I apologize, Patty. I don't know how to turn that off, but something is coming in there. And uh, it has a, uh, it has put a very short cutoff date on it uh, for um, uh, early August, first week in August. And basically, that one lumps Newfoundland and Labrador 
for wind energy development in with Nova Scotia. So, and uh, I think okay. probably into a thing called the, uh, the loop. I, I'm not sure what that is, the energy loop, but gets mentioned a lot, but I don't fully understand it, you may. Uh, so Ottawa appears to be very interested in our development as well. It's not going to October like the provinces really is coming. There it's just, well, come on, tell us what you can do. Give us some ideas and we'll have a look at them and get it into us by October. But the federal government based on is based on Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, and, and and there's this, you know, first week in August type of thing for proposals. And uh that concerns me a lot. Well, there's a couple uh, of things that I, I'm just uh, picking up on here. Uh, let's start with the no more giveaways, because I think that's the origin of your Upper Churchill comment. You know, same thing with some of the deals we've struck in the oil business, same thing with some of the deals we've struck in the mining business. This one, to me, is different because we don't have a tangible asset. Wind is different for me. What the value is that the government can actually charge for it, I think, is vastly different than any of other industry for exploration and production. So that's the trick. Insofar as its contribution to the Atlantic Loop, it seems to me that would be minimal because that's why they're using wind to convert to hydrogen because you can export the hydrogen much, dif much differently than the transmission lines required for the direct uh, export of wind power. Because even on the 500 megawatts on the Maritime Link, that's full. That's occupied. There's not going to be any more room for wind-generated power there. So if, well, I've got a massive wind for farm onshore or offshore. Let's just call the southwest coast of the island. Where's that power going if it's not directly to the, to the closest market, being us? Because who's got the money, the wherewithal, to even consider the transmission requirements to get that to Nova Scotia or beyond? So I don't really know if that plays an active role in the Atlantic Loop. And I'll be honest, Mike, I don't know much about it. I don't think anybody knows much about the Atlantic Loop, other than the fact it's a bit of pie in the sky to help Nova Scotia get off coal fire generation. But how it works, who builds it, who owns it, who manages it, we don't know. So there's my two initial comments on it's hard to put a value on wind like it is minerals and oil and fish. It's difficult to believe that the wind opportunities can be part of the because who's going to build those transmission lines? Because remember, Muscat Falls is as much a transmission project as it is a hydro dam. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're going to be sold back in and, and resold again. Uh, Patty, I, I'm like you. The wind itself doesn't have a whole lot of value. You can't really contain it. You can't say it's yours. It moves on. But the land lease and the ocean floors and everything else, they are all are ours. Sure. And, and and they do have big value. Otherwise, they, nobody would be even looking at this. They'd somebody just stick a windmill even up there and, and go generate power. So, yeah, you're right. The wind doesn't, but the leases are going to have immense value, I believe. Uh, and uh, so I would like to see them. Uh, I, I'm in agreement with you. I don't want to look back at Churchill Falls and at Muskrat, I, only to learn from them. But I don't want to say, oh, we can't do anything else. We certainly can do other things. I just don't want to repeat the mistakes that we've made. And those mistakes were made in secret. And because government uh, made deals with friends of government, uh, in my opinion, uh, and it didn't work out well for returns to the province, in my opinion. Anyway, Patty, if I may, on one other quick item, if I have the time, uh, Quickly, yeah. I'd like to yeah, I'd like to talk about the taxi services uh, to St. John's International Airport. Last week, it uh, showed up on the media that I'm in, Twitter, that I participate in, in that people were dozens, if not hundreds, I don't know, but certainly hundreds over time for the past decades, are standing at the airport waiting for taxis, sometimes for an hour or two. 
to get from the airport to wherever they're going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's not good enough. And this has been going on for years. It particularly happens when downtown is closing up or in the middle of a snowstorm or busy times for taxis elsewhere where they can make money better, faster, quicker by servicing the market other than the airport. And uh, so something needs to be done on that. Once again, Paul Lane tweeted out he did call for a meeting of the airport authority. But, Patty, nobody is accepting responsibility for this. The airport authority says it's not us. They get a contracted company to do the work for them. The contracted company is saying we're doing the best we can. We have a problem. We don't know if cars meet all the needs on it. The city of St. John says not us. It's the airport authority and the contracted company. The tourism people down there. The tourism people pay the problem, shake their head, say we can't do anything here. We got no role in this. So, and and the federal government and and the province especially call, come home here. So. This has been going on for decades and hasn't been solved because nobody wants to take the lead. And uh, and it's not good for visitors to our province. Yeah, let's remember, some of those visitors might be the ones looking for a taxi cab in the downtown area as well. I think the major contributor to all of this is if you look back five years ago and did the math with how many cabs were on the road in and around St. John's and then compare that to today, there's a reason why when, t- when it's the hot peak times, whether it be a late night flight for a big 777 with 300 passengers on it and or pickup time, the notable pickup times in and around the downtown core, bars and restaurants and what have you, all of a sudden there's so many fewer cabs that we have we've been part of creating an environment where it's more expensive than ever for the cabbies to operate it's more expensive than ever to get in the cab and there's fewer cabs to get so we've got ourselves a real pickle that i don't even know who the lead entity could be or should be to be honest well the cab the cab permits you're speaking about that hasn't changed for well maybe 20 years that i was here what has um, uh, the number of cabs that are out there other than some accessible cabs were granted special permits we oh no there's way fewer cabs on the road now than there was five years ago far fewer no not there's a, the number of permits are there. The, the number that are active permits. So permits are, are held by companies. There's an oligopoly. One family controls 80% of the taxi permits in the city of St. John's. Sure, and there's so far fewer cabs on the road. That's just the fact of the matter. There's no one can... Putting few. Yeah, so the city should shake that up but it doesn't want to shake it up because it is a very comfortable and it's, it's created an oligopoly where all the, uh, the permits are caught are owned by one com- company who would take a very dim view and would flood city hall they'd make like the freedom convoy look like a picnic if uh, th- by telling uh, their drivers that their the city's interfering so you're right it's a mess it's got to be done but uh, it's not going to be done if people keep pointing at each other and say it's not me it's not me it's not me they should get together somebody should take the lead the city yeah for it, I say. Yeah, Mexican firing squad. For me, it's the airport authority because they're the ones that let the contract, so it should be from the entity that lets it to ensure that there's a commitment for the winning bid to have cabs there when required. I don't know who else could actually do it. Can the city get involved in enforcing something that's more of a federal situation than municipal? I think it's the airport authority. Well, there's there's both. For the airport contract, it is an airport authority issue. For the shortage, overall shortage, not only at the airport, try to get a cab up sometimes from downtown or anytime is busy. That's the city of St. John's. So one is an individual contract. The other one is the number of uh, permits that are out there, who holds the permits, the return on investment, what the costs of getting into it are, insurance, all that kind of stuff. That should be reviewed. And for some reason, the city has avoided taking that review seriously. Patty, thank you very much. Have a great day. Same to you, Mike. Thanks for the time.
Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Brandon Tucker, 29 years of age, last seen on the 8th of July. There was a search. He's from Gander. The RCMP has called off the search. Margaret Tucker is in the queue. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Margaret Tucker. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you this morning, Margaret? Do my best to, to call in. Yeah, you know, every day uh, he's missing, as of, you know, as of uh, the 8th of July. And that's the, the day is the 27th. That's, I think, was 19 days. Like I said, every day is a blur now. You know, you go in the day, you go in the night. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a living nightmare. If, if I want to, you know, talk bluntly, you know, it, it, it's pure hell because you don't know. Not knowing is, uh, is madness. And when the phone rings, you pick it up and you're thinking that's someone calling or that, you know, that's about Brandon. That's a positive tip. But as of now, the police or the RCMP are following up every lead, every tip. And, uh, you know, basically they run to every tip that, you know, they hope that it's something positive and that they can put on a search again and waiting for a different information like the GPS coordinates are getting so much, Virgin Mobile, everything, all that going into effect. And they're dealing with what they have now and waiting for more, I guess. Um, but basically, it's uh, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's I can nightmare. I cannot imagine. I know that the the search, whether it be uh, members of the Newfoundland Labrador Search and Rescue Association, then there yep. was the aerial searches, police drones, RCMP yep. dogs. They searched yep. for five days and they called it yep. off. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how personal to get with this, Margaret, because this is heartbreaking to say the very least. But there was comments in the news story I read about. Brandon might not have been in a great state of mind or something. How, how should we consider that? How do we factor that into your worry and how the police look for and how the tips come in? Because I hate to pry into your personal life and or Brandon's, a man who I've never met. But in the news story, how do you want people to hear that, to read it and think about it? Well, Patty, first of all, I'll answer what I feel I want to. Sure, of course. Please, right? of, please. Of course. I'll share what I want to share. When it becomes too personal, well, obviously I won't. Um, but basically, uh, you know, if someone is dealing with any mental uh, health issue, could be depression, could be anxiety, um, any, anything, anything to do with addiction, whether that's uh, marijuana, which, you know, you, you can debate, uh, you know, to the nines with people about, you know, uh, oh, well, you know, the, the prime minister okayed it, so it's fine. Yeah, that's fine. People do as they wish. But if you have anything like that, anything at all, that contributes sometimes to the isolation, to the paranoia, everything else after an extended period of time. And um, that's something that, you know, I, I, I'm totally against and always will be. And then you become, then you, you kind of use that as a, a coping mechanism. Am I not right? And then you end up, you know, so basically um, when you have someone who has anxiety and then they they basically they reach a point like you said there's no there's no uh, three digit number out there for any help if my son didn't want to speak to me or someone in the family and sometimes people don't want to they want they speak more to a stranger there you're exactly right when you say that 911 is for emergencies 811 is the nurse's line if i had a child a new child a new parent they would call and say oh he has a high fever what should i do they know they go to the Janeway. but even myself if i was to be overwhelmed and having pains on my chest the 81 line is great the nurses are there but they're not trained you know not every nurse is in working at the waterford who 
who knows and is able to deal with any with mental health issues, they'll put you on to the right person, give you advice and guide you. But you are darn well right. They do need a three-digit number because how quick, if he needed that that day, how quick was that to his access? He didn't have that. And then the day that he did go missing, um, Virgil Mobile went down. Uh, which was also a negative. But my point is, any my son is a happy, happy person, beautiful person, beautiful person, a gay man with a partner, Travis. And, um, you know, I was so happily looking forward to going to that gay pride parade the weekend. Had my new button all ready to go. And then life hit me like a ton of bricks. But, yeah, in regards to mental health issues and everything and people, no, the majority of people who have common sense, you know, who are not ignorant to the uh, suffering of people with depression. Everyone deals with some form of anxiety on a given day. Anyone deals with it. You can deal with depression, see what life throws at you, and then we'll see how you deal with things. So basically, uh, I've had so much support uh, in regards to the mental health issue, so much support. I don't hear a negative word. People today are brighter than, you know, they were years mm-hmm. ago. You know what I'm saying? I do. Go ahead, Patty. I hope I, hope I haven't gone around the bush, but, you know, that's how I feel. No, uh, I, I think I'm not 100% sure what I was hoping to hear because I wasn't hoping to hear anything. I was hoping to give you an opportunity to speak and say whatever you wanted to say and to reject speaking to some uh, portions of the story because that's completely up to you, and I respect that. So what we need people to do is to keep their eyes peeled. So well, that's why I was calling in, my love, and I'm not cutting you off. No, but as ahead. of last week, the RCMP, he had asked us, the family, uh, could they look into every area? So they're saying, okay, contact friends, someone that he might have stayed with. And this is a positive. If, he was stay- if he's staying with someone and just needs time to himself, well, then, you know, contact your contacts. So you're contacting everyone. And then my sons are contacting people who are in the band that he used to be in years ago when he was younger. So they're contacting people that I wouldn't even know of, you know. So basically, you're reaching out, hoping someone's going to have a, a tip or, you know. But basically, those people are the first ones that would call and say, you know, I heard from him. Uh, so basically, um, that's why I'm on today. I was calling to plead with the audience to beg practically, you know, if if someone is keeping him there, help, you know, helping him, thinking, okay, he needed to get away. He felt, uh, you know, isolated and needed some time to himself. He needs to be to himself. I'm just begging the public that if, if there's someone out there doing that and is, is helping him and feeling that's what they should be doing, you know, thank you, number one, for that. Thank you, it, it, you know, uh, but you need to come forward and you need to, need to let us know. And uh, because, you know, that is so important. We just need to know. And if you're helping him, I just wanted them to reach out, you know, reach out to the RNC. And they are, you know, they're basically 729-8000. You could reach out to the Gander Detachment, which is 1709-256-6841. And Crime Stoppers, we all know Crime Stoppers, 1-800-222-8477-TIPS. So I guess I was coming on today because I've called each week since it's happened. And it takes everything in me to get on and talk. Um, because you feel like, you know, it, it, it's like I said, it's a nightmare. And people say, what's it like? You know, not what's it like, but I can't imagine being in your shoes. And I'm thinking, no. I said, if you have children, I said, think about it. You're in the park. And I said, one of your children, you look around and they're not there. And you, you look and you yell out their name. And you imagine that feeling, you know, that feeling what that would come in your gut, that terror. That, that's how I'm feeling each and every day. Because he may be 29-year-old man. He may have been a man who, uh, you know, very beautiful man, beautiful, and needed some extra help. And, and hopefully when he comes back, that's what we're going to give him. Mental health is nothing to be ashamed of. If anyone out there needs to talk to someone, you do it. Because if I needed to go tomorrow to the health science or to go into that Waterford and say, yeah, 
this is how I feel. And, you know, this is it. But I'm strong and I'm staying positive. Of course, he's going to come home. But I would be the first one there. Would be the first one there. So don't ever keep your feelings to yourself. Talk to people. But uh, basically, that's what I wanted to say. You know, if there's anyone out there listening, you have children, keep your eye open for Brandon. Keep your eye. Any tip, call it in. Nothing is, is, is too small. You know, but imagine that feeling. Imagine that feeling. You don't know where they are. And even though they may be children and they're, de- in, they're dependent on you, when someone is not in their, their mental health is not right at the time, they're like children too. And Brandon may be 29, but he's still nine years old to me, and he's running around that yard in St. Philip with his brothers. So if you, you can imagine that feeling you would have in your gut, imagine that's what I'm living every day. There's well, basically, pe- mental health, when people, there, there's no, to me, there's no negativity. I'm surrounded, surrounded with positivity, and I'm surrounded with, surrounded with love, and all the help from the RCMP, they are amazing. The RNC, also amazing. When I had a call at Boring Park, and he was under the bridge thinking that was a tip, I went in there with my son, and I searched, and the RNC came, and they, they looked into it also. So they've been there right on it, too. Any, any tip, they're on it. If there's a person of concern here in town that they're thinking, okay, maybe he's with them, they're on it. So all I'm going to say is kudos to RCMP, kudos to the RNC, every search and rescue, everyone that's helping me dispatch at the White Hill. Everyone, thank you so, so much. And mental health, to, to, to look at someone, if have a negativity, any kind of a negative word or a negative connotation, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself. And my son is a beautiful young man, and I know he's going to come home. And if he is with someone, this is why I came on, Patty, just to plead with the public from talking. I hope you get what I'm feeling. I hope, I hope you can feel sympathy and know that you should reach out. I want you to know. Yeah. I want you to know that I do. Patty, I don't deal with negative. Negative feeds negative. I'm all positive. And my son is coming home, and I have hope. And that's the thing. I do have hope. I do have hope. There's, you know, there have been people in this province in the last number of weeks who've lost people, and and that hope is gone, and and I have hope. So I'm in blessed. I'm blessed today that I still have hope. If you can look at this situation and feel blessed at all, I am blessed, and I'm blessed to have someone like you to be able to call in and have you there available to me. But you're darn well right. They should have a three number for people to call. You know, eight one one nine one one. Let's put something in for the people of society and people in St. John's who need that. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to go on. No, that's okay. I I want you to know that uh, all my positive vibes, and I would suggest most of our listeners' positive vibes are headed towards you and your family. Uh, There's pictures available of Brandon Tucker, of course, last seen around the trail areas in Gander on the 8th of July. If you want to see a picture of Brandon, I, I very quickly was able to find one when I searched for it. So please do, and keep your eye open, and to share... To share Margaret's faith that Brandon will come home. That's that's where my head is and my heart is right now with you, Margaret. Uh, you're welcome on this program. I wish you nothing but the best. And um, I, I want to say something like keep the faith, but I don't even know if that's appropriate. I don't really know what to say here now other than the fact that <laughs> I, I'm with you. And I'm hoping for the very best outcome, just like everyone else's. Yes. Now, Patty, just taking the time and just talking to me means the world to me and having your listeners listen and and just taking the time, my love, you know, and and, uh, listening. 
that means a lot. That means so much. And, and, and I feel positivity and I feel, you know, from everyone around me. So thank you so much. And uh, you don't have to say anything. You listen to me. You offered me the opportunity to come on and put that out there. We need to know if someone who has him in town or someone has him and is trying to help, come forward. Come forward. You know, thank you so much uh, for letting me speak. And uh, well, I totally agree. Let's put that mental health line together and put that uh, three digits out there. So anyone else in his situation or anyone else feeling this negative mental anguish and pain and uh, that they'll have someone to reach out to immediately and not, not even have to think twice. We'll talk again soon, Margaret. Thank you, my love. Take good care. Okay. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the program. So for those of you in the queue, don't want to jam you up against the news and not give you the required time to make your point and uh, points, whatever they may be. So appreciate your patience. We're going to talk about doctor shortages. There's a response to uh, some conversation we've had about wind farms here in the province. And then I think it was one of the big ones is the policies and approach we take to retaining post-secondary graduates. We do know that education is the key to our viable financial and healthy future here in the province. And it's one thing for subsidizing education at Memorial University, for instance, but to keep the best and the brightest. What does it take? Tom's got some ideas that he's going to share right after the news break. If you'd like to join these people in the queue, the number to dial if you're in the St. John's metro region is 273-5211. And elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM. Of course, that's 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number five. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay, thank you. How about you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Great. Uh, uh, you were talking about subsidizing education and everything and retaining students when they get the degree to stay in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Does the government have a contract to sign with the students that once you complete your degree that you work in Newfoundland for five years, and if you don't, you need to repay your loan? No, they don't. Well, they did years ago. Yeah, it's people refer to it as a service contract. And I understand the thought behind putting it in place, especially in some of the disciplines that we really do need people, for instance, graduates of the med school. The thought that makes some people think it's a flawed process because if you put those types of rules in place, you may not get the type of people you want sitting in the seats of whether it be co-op programs in the engineering school and or at the med school or otherwise. I don't know if that's an exaggeration or not, but I am indeed subsidizing their education. We all are. Every taxpayer in the province is doing exactly that. You know, the trick would be to foster and to create a space where the most recent 81 graduates wanted to stay or the majority of them wanted to stay so i don't know what we do to ensure that but keeping every one of the best and brightest graduates whether it be from cna the marine institute or vocational schools or mon it's in all our best interest of course it is yes it is uh i'm just lost from it uh but you know if we look at our teachers and our doctors i mean we're helping them it's only you know due respect come back and help us yeah 
they're in such high demand, right? You know, we just have to do a much better job when someone enters the med school to have an active, ongoing conversation with that particular person, access to, you know, the right kind of training and our opportunities to, to articulate what the upside is to being here and expose them to whatever attractive recruitment package we can put to set up shop in Bergio or wherever. But, you know, apparently there's a bit of a fractured relationship there at this moment in time, which is not helpful. People need to also see the province as a great place to stay, to set down your roots, to establish your family, stay here long term. I don't know how that works necessarily. I don't think it's a one size fits all, but we've got to pay very, very close attention to it. You know, I, I brought it up. The reason why I brought it up is because my cousin many years ago uh, became a teacher and she went into a small community for her five years and stayed. Okay. And again, I, I'm going to move to Alberta. My other cousin, she needed to get an education. She did the same thing. She had to go to a Hutterite colony for five years to be forgiven her student loan. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good idea to look at those situations, look into it. Well, we can mimic best practices. I, I don't dispute that. I mean, in, for instance, in the province of British Columbia, their graduates, especially those who are going to practice as family doctors, in year two, they put them on the year three pay scale. They have some loan forgiveness as part of the package for them to stay. We've done some things along those lines. For instance, for family doctors, if you establish a, a family practice with a full patient roster after three years, a $100,000 bonus coming their way. That's a nice carrot at the end of the stick that's something uh, really attractive to dangle out there. Can and should there be more? Maybe to try to look at how the BC model works? Sure. I mean, because whatever works, works. We don't have to recreate the wheel or reinvent the wheel because there's people out there that have the big ideas, have seen some positive outcomes here. So let's do what's required. And even if that's as simple as things like some flexibility associated with the hours of operation and the numbers of patients you take and access to hospital privileges, whatever it is, we don't have to bend over backwards so that all of a sudden every single card is in the hands of a professional healthcare or otherwise, but accommodations and understanding what it's going to take has got to be, like Dr. Megan Hayes, who's the new Deputy Minister for uh, Healthcare Professional Recruitment and Retention, she has her hands full. It'd be great to be able to speak with her about the different thoughts she hears from different parts of the province and different strategies to ensure that we're getting and we're making things easier and better in healthcare. For sure. And I hope we do come with up with a solution in the near future because I myself are now the doctor myself. Mm -hmm. And that's why I brought it up. But I do thank you for your time today. I appreciate yours. And we'll speak to you again. Thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. You know, the, the thought is real, and it's a fairly common one, I think. Given the level of subsidy... And it's true, we do indeed subsidize education. Well, take Memorial University in particular. There is a different standalone budget for the med school versus the general coffers at MUN. There has been an increased number of seats for uh, students from Newfoundland and Labrador. It was 60 out of the 80. Now it's 65 out of the 80. The province of New Brunswick has ceased to fund the five seats that they were uh, involved with at Munns Med School. The province is going to pick up that slack. So now there's 65 seats. The trick will be, and I'll go back to an email that I read uh, when the students were convoking and convocation ceremonies at the Arts and Culture Center. What was the level of conversation and interview and interaction we had with all of the 81 medical school graduates that walked across the stage that day? That's a great question. 
and it'd be nice to know. So I would assume, and you know, assumptions are dangerous, but to increase, to enhance those types of issues, based on Dr. Megan Hayes' work as a new deputy minister, all of these things are going to play an active role in doing better. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number four. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you feeling these days? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. Great to hear. Patty, I uh, listened with interest to your first uh, first day you arrived back talking about your very personal um, battle with uh, COVID and uh, the surprise you got. It wasn't like you thought it would be. And you know I've talked about this many, many times, and I think this this latest variant where it's uh, more of an aerosol is what people really don't totally understand. And I was thinking this morning, you're breaking up pretty badly, Sean. Oh, okay, I'll move a bit here. How was that? A little bit better. Go ahead. Okay. So if the virologist from Mund would come on and uh, maybe invite him on, I'm just not telling you what to do, but just suggesting it, uh, at least then, you know, you can have all kinds of very commonly uh, wondered questions from people who are out there thinking now, you know, what does aerosol really mean? And uh, aerosol means if you light a cigarette in the largest ballroom in the largest hotel, within about 30 seconds, you'll smell that one puff of smoke in the other end of that ballroom. That's how, that's how far aerosol can reach. And it just lingers in the air. And that's literally what this thing does. But, you know, I don't think people really get it. Uh, you know, you go down to any place in town, people are still in there without masks and they're, and they're uh, taking it for granted that they still have, have some, some protection from their vaccines from four or five, six months ago. Because they're not all listening to, to the updates, and there are very few now. I heard Dr. Fitzgerald on the other day talking about and we all have it. But unless reminded uh, by these individuals to the general public constantly, uh, people have just gotten used to now not going in with the mask on. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's going to be very serious, and we're going to have another big problem on our hands if we don't already have it. Uh, fair enough. The The issue surrounding the transmissibility, the infectious nature of it, the severity of I think people kind of know what they're getting themselves into and how insofar as what the aerosol means to the BA5 variant versus previous variants, knowing that it, we've all understood it's airborne for quite a long time now. Gone are the days where we're scrubbing our groceries when we brought them home. It's an airborne disease, airborne virus. So do you think that people don't actually know that's the case? And if you say, for instance, there's a 10% more likelihood that the aerosol of BA5 lingers, da, 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 da. you think that makes a difference in how anyone's going to proceed with their day-to-day activities? I think it will. Now they've heard uh, that there are a lot of people who are sick, but they can't understand it because they've had their vaccines and they've had their boosters and all the rest of it, but they just don't realize that these things last you know, a little bit longer than, uh, than your Tylenol, you know, but... Um, Obviously, you know, it, it, it doesn't last like they think it does, and you're not protected as long as you think you are. And, I, you know, I mean, why else do people walk into places, and I see older people uh, in particular, a lot of younger people, obviously, but, you know, going into places or hanging out in places, and then the next couple of days go by and you find out that they have it, and then they've got to try and deal with it. And, and it's not easy to deal with uh, unless you've got someone caring for you or at least, you know, available to run around, pick up things. You're still supposed to isolate. I don't know how many people are doing that. And if they aren't doing that, then they're spreading it. 
So I, I just wanted to bring that up and having a virologist come on and just, you know, reset the reset the chairs on the deck, if you will, and uh, and inform everyone and uh, broadcast a bit of that. Maybe encourage uh, Department of Health to put out some PSAs on your station and on your other stations that you have uh, for different uh, age groups or different uh, listeners and get it out there because it is it is being a little bit too uh, flippant, I think, a lot of this now. And uh, I was in the supermarket yesterday and there were at least a dozen people around me and I was trying to use well, it's certainly a different landscape out there. I can only speak to what I see. And anecdotally, yeah. if uh, let's just take a, some round numbers. If there was 80%, we'll just say, wearing masks in the grocery store a month ago, that 80 seems a lot more like 50 now, if I just take a very quick scan of just what I see. But I don't know what everyone else sees or what they're exposed to or what they think of it. Now, I, I'm going to guess that some of the heat has kept some masks in pockets or glove boxes or the like over the no. last few question. days so no yeah there's a lot of contributing factors i would assume yeah so anyway I, I sean bring it up because, yep. yeah no i, I want to bring it up and i think uh, just to set the record straight i think the virologist ramon would be great as a guest and i think you'd have a very interesting uh, conversation going on there so thanks for everything I, I appreciate all the updates it's wonderful appreciate your time thank you sean okay. thank you okay, bye-bye and can i just uh, this is not necessarily on sean's behalf but just from sitting in the seat for a long time even though there's some issues that you or someone belong to you or your body are completely sick of. I get it. Am I sick of the pandemic? Probably, just like everybody else. But that being tired of something doesn't mean it's gone away. And every time that there's an uh, opportunity or request for people to be brought on to share some information and or we bring forward like the, uh, the COVID uh, hub update that happens on Wednesdays, I have zero interest in making anyone afraid of anything. I have zero interest in pushing panic buttons. I'm not into it. It makes no sense. It's counterproductive, and it's a real nuisance for many people listening to the program. When we share information, it's as simple as that. It's information. People will deal with it and hear it and apply it to their own behaviors differently. That's just nature of the beast. Same thing with something that I kind of guess I learned with my most recent bout with it, or my only bout with COVID. It hit me different than it hit my wife, different than it hit my oldest son, different than it hit me buddies, different than it hit my coworkers. So it's just not the same for everyone. So when people are sharing information, it's just that. It's, it's no more, no less. Uh, let's go and take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you, whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Well, I mean, I guess it's uh, just the amount of time sitting in the chair, but some things are painfully predictable. Someone makes a call about if people have updated information about one thing or another and in this case was updated information about what might be different or what people might want to know regarding the most recent variant that we've been talking about BA5 even though we talk about specific things like that very infrequently on the program you know it is incumbent on us to share information when it becomes available and you do with it as you see fit this is never an opportunity for for me for instance because I mean I'm not Dr. Rod Russell from Memorial University I'm not a virologist or an immunologist or a specialist in infectious diseases but if there's information that could be beneficial to someone I don't know why we would never consider offering it to the listening public 
because once again, and I think this is the fundamental issue surrounding all of these different areas of concern and discussions and debate, is people hear a different piece of information differently. And if they think that it's important for them to understand it, to incorporate it into where they go, what they do, fair enough. If it's something in other minds and ears, it's something that's rejected out of hand because you're not interested, you don't think it affects you, it's not going to change how you think about stuff or adjust your behavior, that's fine too. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly not up to me how people hear different pieces of info, whether it be about the wind farms and some of the questions and concerns about value of land leases and, you know, setting up a wind farm to fuel my operations as a mine or something and selling it back to the grid, what that means for my Muskrat Falls bill and or opportunities and the value of the asset with access to our water, uh, the wind and deep water ports and the, uh, the hydrogen that can be, it might be of interest to some and maybe not to others, which is sort of the beauty and the difficult nature of trying to put off a show like this. So it doesn't matter if you've heard something that you agree with or disagree with. If you'd like to chime in with your perspective on any of these issues, we more than welcome that particular call. Also, got an email, and this happens, I'm telling you, all the time. Nobody knows better than me that we hear some very difficult stories. Troubling, some could be heartbreaking, frustratingly sad, whatever. If people think that this is a place that they can turn for a little bit of help or they just need to get it off their chest, okay, by me. And, you know, the emails will always say the same thing. Sheesh is the subject line the show is depressing today. That very well may be. And I can tell you, sitting in the chair for the entirety of the three hours, I understand that perspective. So I'll throw this out there one more time. There is lots of good news and lots of good stories and lots of good people and optimism in different areas and different communities and different regions of the province, different industries. So whenever you think that you've heard about a couple too many of uh, stories that make you down or depressed or sad or irritated, then the onus would be on you to try to pepper the listener with some other much better, upbeat, positive, happy stories. I'm into it. There's a reason why we try to offer some different things off the top of the program, in particular on purpose each and every day. Some congratulations that are going out, whether it be economic, pardon me, academic achievements or athletics achievements or whatever, because when the good news is out there, I think we all appreciate a little dollop of it. And you don't even need to be a sports fan, for instance, to think that it's a great thing that someone here is uh, doing great things on the figure skating, figure skating scene or bowling or darts or whatever it is. Because every now and then, just hearing something like that is a reason to say, yeah, bravo, way to go, young man, young woman, and or adult man or woman doing great things like, for instance, a new hook. So we consciously think about that. Try to put some of the good news out there, especially to start people's mornings off. It's inevitable, given the layer and uh, the different complexities and concerns and different industries and healthcare and the like. That's always going to be part of the conversation. It's always going to be part of some of the calls that we get. So you would be doing me, and I would suggest the listeners, a great favor. Is that if you'd like to share some of the better news, and it can be extremely small, and it doesn't mean it's insignificant. Someone belonged to you, a friend of yours, the grandchild, has done something that has brought upon a, a proud mom or dad or nana pop or a friend. Sometimes they are contagious. Just like stories of woe and worry are contagious, the same thing can be applied, I would think, to some of the good news. So I'll just throw that out there for your consideration. And I get it's maybe not everyone's uh, cup of tea to 
want to be on the air, whether it be a level of nerves or whatever, you might think that your issue you're bringing forward might be scoffed in some corners because it's not earth shattering and it's not the big topics of the day. Just between me and you, who cares? Who cares what they think? If it's important to you, it's important enough to me. Whether that be good news, bad news, or indifferent news. So you have to remember that as we try to plow through uh, these shows. So look, it's the open invitation on the good news of the day because that is absolutely what makes the world go around. Let's check in on the Twitter feed. That's not necessarily what makes the world go around. Uh, so the concern here is that this fellow, this regarding service contracts. Fair point. He says, on the service contracts for doctors, what's stopping a doctor from just skipping the country and going to work somewhere else? It doesn't seem like they have inf- they'd be enforceable unless a doctor decides to go along with it. A couple of things. How remote might that be? That someone is going to try to scam us as they begin their career as a healthcare professional, in this case, a medical doctor. Remember, wherever they land to set up shop, they are going to have their future employer deal with the college, the university, the medical school that graduated this person to verify credentials. At that moment in time, we have a captive audience. There's nothing quite like a character portion of the interview to say, oh, Dr. So-and-so, who has fled and is not obliging their service contract that they signed at Memorial University's medical school, well, that person is a scoundrel, and you should take that into consideration as you go to hire uh, this lady or this man for this job as a physician at your clinic, your hospital, your country. There's ways to work around this. Not everyone's going to scam us out of a service contract. Plus, what did we lose? The ink and the cartridge and the paper that we printed the contract on. That's the only downside, right? We already subsidized their education. They're not running away holding some uh, pot of money that we gave them. That's not how it works at all. So enforcing contracts is a little bit more fundamental than I think this particular listener has uh, painted that picture. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's uh, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's try line number one. George, you're on the air. Yes, hi, Patty. Hi. I got a question for you. Have you uh, ever went to Western Brookfield and Grossford? I have so. Beautiful spot. Terrific, uh, incredible. Yeah, I when I was a younger man, I had two. I went in and actually hiked up to the gorge, up to the mountain, stayed up there a few few days, and came back. Uh, but now uh, I have kind of an issue now. I uh, I lived away in Ontario, and Alberta, and a few different places, and I have friends there. And I'm getting a little bit older now. I have some people coming back to Newfoundland including my daughter who lives in Yellowknife and her boyfriend and that. And there's a group of about 14 of us. We're going to go to going up to Grosmorn, and we want to do the Western Brook Pond tour, right? Boat tour. And uh, it wasn't about five years ago they replaced uh, the boardwalk with uh, a, a road in there? Yeah, thereabouts. It was a beautiful, natural walk-in, and they have a pretty big, wide road now. They say it's for, respond- for first responders and for more accessibility-related matters. That's right. Yeah, I checked with them, and, I, and apparently now uh, the, the tour operators are not allowed to uh, provide any transportation in and out. Uh, which I find in these days with accessibility when it comes to people with various physical disabilities and even older people, ageism really, uh, that uh, they wouldn't be allowed to do that. It's a three-kilometer walk in and three-kilometer walk out. And I asked about alternatives, what you could do. Well, they said you could go to the Tourist Information Center. They have two wheelchairs there that you can rent and push in and push back out. 
I find it highly uh, unacceptable these days when, you know, accessibility to everything is so so prominent, you know? What do you think? Well, there's supports from Parks Canada for a variety of things, sensory needs, mobility issues, physical impairments. I mean, I know that to be true. Uh, I've actually seen people, someone I know has utilized them in Woody Point, for instance. So whether it be a specific program like an ATV ride in for someone who needs it over that three-kilometer road into Western Brook Pond, I don't know if that's an actual formal program that's in place, but I do know Parks Canada does have programs for a variety of these things, uh, mobility physical impairments, sensory needs, those types of things. I'm surprised there isn't some additional support other than, well, here's a wheelchair for that particular uh, beautiful part of, of Grossmore. Well, I checked with both the tour operator, and they say they're not allowed to provide transportation in. And I checked, uh, uh, I phoned the phone number for uh, Grossmore and Parks Canada, and I guess it was only, uh, I don't know, secretary or whatever phoned me back. And they say, no, they don't provide uh, transportation. And the only alternative is those two wheelchairs at the Tourist Information yep. Center. Someone just sent me... Ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know what they would be. There's probably liabilities associated with putting someone on an ATV or whatever to bring them in. So someone just sent this. Western Brook Pond. Trailhead to the pond, three kilometers, has a hardened tread, packed gravel. Trailhead with 4.8 meters wide. Da, 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 da. An all-terrain wheelchair is available at no charge from the visitor center. It is non-motorized and cannot be propelled by the occupant. Reservations are recommended. It goes on to offer an email address, which is grossmore.info at gc.pc.ca and the telephone number. So I guess that's the extent of their offer. Yeah, I, I phoned them. I, you know, I've been talking to them. That's the extent of what they're offering. Now, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, I can understand. They don't want vehicles on that road. But s- simple things, Patty, uh, you probably played a bit of golf. You've golf carts. No environmental damage, electric motors on it, uh, you know, uh, or electric battery operator things. Right? Why wouldn't you be able to use something like that to get uh, some people, such as my group, there's four of us, two wheelchairs, four of us, that need some help to get in and out. Uh, why wouldn't it be able to provide something like that, you know? I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. But the last sentence in this says, some visitors have used the small motorized mall scooters on this trail, and that uh, was neither here nor there unless you own one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I see what they have available up there. They have two wheelchairs that you push. That's what I was told. Yeah. That, well, that's what it looks like. And this is, uh, this is itemized, accessible trails, Western Brook Pond. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's I think that's uh, ludicrous, actually. <laughs> you know, yeah, living out of the province and talking for people who are in the province who like to come here, some of the things they think about first, you know, Single Hill, Jelly Bean Row, Western Brook Pond is high on their priorities, right? And there's a lot of older tourists that come in here, and a lot of them can't can't do this. One can, one can't, maybe, you know, that sort of thing. They should come up with some golf carts I think is an ideal solution. Yeah, it makes sense. Minimal impact. And, and just remember, one of the arguments they made for changing it from the boardwalk, a very narrow trail, to this 4.8 meters wide, was not only for first responders, but for accessibility. So if that was part of the thought, all they've really done is made it wider. They have made it easier for someone in a wheelchair, for instance, to make their way in. So yeah, that's an interesting point. It's not only people in wheelchairs, too, Patty. It's people... For instance, don't need a wheelchair. Well, maybe, you know, personally, I have COPD. Walking long distance is troublesome these days. Uh, and, and, and people like that there and just, you know, people can walk but can't walk that full distance, right? Or are doing it walking with maybe you got back issues. 
walk a kilometer, got to sit down, your back's painful, right? So, you know, these days, hey, you know, we're doing it everywhere else. Why can't we do it there? Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer to that would be, other than if th- part of their thought was accessibility, then they've gone halfway. They got the road. Yeah. <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. I'm going to zip off an email, uh, like I do. I spend half my day doing that kind of stuff, as to whether or not there's any consideration for going the other halfway. <laughs> if we're going to change the uh, pathway for accessibility-related matters, are there any plans in place to make it easier for those who might need some assistance getting in that three-kilometer stretch? Fair enough. I'm glad you brought it up this morning, George. Yes, and thank you. Do that, Betty. And uh, my son, I, I'm going to send up an email to... I already have it drafted to Booty Uxins, uh, who's the MP for that area, too, and just see what they have to say, right, you know? Yeah, why not? Let me know what you hear back from the uh, from the minister. Yeah, she's the minister of labor. Yeah. Perfect, Patty. Uh, if you could follow up on that, I'd really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome, George. All the best. Bye. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there you go. It's an interesting question because absolutely, like a lot of people are really dismayed when they changed that pathway into Western Brook Pond because it was beautiful, a beautiful natural walk with some of the boardwalks over the, some of the vegetation, the flora and fauna. But now it is a pretty wide, gray, packed gravel road, which looks much different when compared to the old. Uh, opportunity to get into that spectacular part of the UNESCO World Heritage Site in Grossmore. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.